Um, so I've got a I've got a story, and what I've tried to I've. I've tried really hard as I've been given opportunity to, uh, to preach the word to, is to, to try as much as I can not to use illustrations that involve my kids because I always hear horror stories about like, yeah, there was a pastor's kid and, you know, he, he grew up and, 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 and turned out to be like this, this criminal who robbed and, and hurt people and, and, and different things like that because when he was growing up the whole time, his, his, uh, his dad would use him as illustrations and it messed up his whole emotional psyche and everything else. So I'll try not to do that, but I'm going to do it today. I got a story today. Um, I can't help it, man. It's just a lot of good material. Lots of good material. It was probably, um, Hunter was probably about, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. Um, and uh, it, Christmas, it's, you guys already know how, how crazy we get about Christmas at our house. It kind of starts about July, you know, and it wraps up, you know, somewhere around February. So, uh, so, it, so he, Christmas morning came, and we would always, and I was actually going to get the video and play it for you guys because uh, I know it, it's, it's just, I'm not going to do it justice trying to tell you how it went down because I'm not going to act like he acted. Um, you needed to see the video. Uh, but he had, you know, just like all the kids that asked for stuff for Christmas, I want this, the, the hottest thing that was, that was out that year, whatever, that's what he wanted. And, and so we bought Christmas gifts and, and, and did all the things, you know, and then, uh, you know, Christmas morning, uh, it's just, you know, the, the, the party begins, right? And, uh, and, and one of the things that Santa Claus did... We just surprised all of us because it wasn't on the list. It wasn't anything that, that they had asked for. Um, and so after all the gifts and everything had been opened, um, we brought him to the back door. And Santa Claus miraculously delivered a trampoline to the backyard. Wasn't on his list. Wasn't anything that he had thought about. But the dude went insane. I'm talking about screaming, a trampoline, a trampoline. And I'm like, he's just running in the kitchen. And we're getting all this on video. And it's just like he lost his mind for a minute, you know. And it's like, and, and I think, you know, what it is, is it's that, that moment that was, that, that we just think is so funny is, um, is that his expectations were exceeded, right? Like he, everything that he had asked for, he had gotten, right? And not at all in a million years did he expect that. He didn't even ask for it. It wasn't in, on his radar at all. Um, but when it showed up, it's just like, well, this is just more than I can handle. And he couldn't like emotionally contain himself. Right. And so he lost his mind. Uh, but here's, here's why I want to use that illustration. Why I want to kind of, you know, think about that as I was considering how, uh, how this book's been going through the, the, uh, the passages that we've been seeing through Ruth, like in, in our, in our nature, like who we are as people, like it's, it's quite normal for us to be caught off guard whenever things are exceeded, whenever our expectations are exceeded, because it doesn't seem like it happens a lot. Right. And so when it does happen, we're just like, man, my mind is blown. I cannot believe like that was far above and beyond whatever, whatever expectation I had. And I think even we do this like with God, like we believe this with God and we walk like that in our spiritual life with God. Like God is restricted by my knowledge is how we kind of live our lives. Like he's restricted by the knowledge of what I can or, or cannot see, which then uh, th like then that, 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 that belief, like, it, it, it affects what's possible with him. Right. What I can expect and what I can fathom in my mind is what I limit God to be able to do. It's, it's, it's the limitation, the restrictions that I put on him. And, and Jesus would even say something. He would kind of elude using some, some picture stories and some parables in, in, in the gospel of Mark. He would say the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so you see how Jesus is kind of saying like there's a whole lot of things that happen from, the, from that little obedience of just setting a seed in the ground and just sitting in this holding pattern, sitting in this waiting pattern and just trusting that God's going to do his thing. And then just not sure what's all going on there, but one day something sprouts up and then, and then it grows into something the fruit of God's faithfulness, and, and, and then, we, then the harvest comes. And so as we take our final look at these three people that's been kind of the focal point of our story through the book of Ruth, uh, we're going to be in chapter 4 if you want to go ahead and get there as uh, we're going to read here in just a minute. But as we, as we take this final look... Um, we, we've come to know so well that we wrap up the study, like uh, what we need to see and what we've been saying, I guess, in so many terms is that you see both the implicit and the explicit nature of God in this story all the way through, like to, the, the ways that he's working in and through the, this story that are beyond us and that were certainly beyond Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And, and you've seen plot twist after plot twist. You know, you get to one part and it looks like things are going to go well. And then something changes. And then the whole story goes in a different direction. And then something happens again. And then the story goes in a whole, a whole different direction. But what we've tried to communicate across this whole book is that none of these things have caught God by surprise. None of these things have, have shocked him and thought, oh, no, that was not supposed to happen that way. Every single step was orchestrated and ordained by an unsurprised God in this story. He is unfolding his plan at every twist and turn in the story. And the big idea throughout this whole story, and so... If you want to know what the book of Ruth is about, what we've been saying over and over, I want to try to sum it up in, in one statement. God's people reap the fruit of God's faithfulness as their faith is tested in seasons of uncertainty. I want to say that again. God's people reap the fruit of God's faithfulness as their faith is tested in seasons of uncertainty. That's what we've seen throughout this book. This was the season that Ruth and Naomi were in. A season of uncertainty. A, a season of unknowingness, if I can make up a term. And if, you, if you're here, like if you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself necessarily as a follower of Christ or, or if you, you do identify yourself as a believer but, but you feel like God's kind of played more of an absent father role in your life than, than anything else, I, I want to say first, I want to say two things. One, I'm, I'm certainly uh, excited that you're here. It's, it's a great morning for you to be here. And that leads me to the second thing I want to say. I believe that you're going to be encouraged today. I believe that things that we're going to see today in Scripture are going to be relevant for you. Relevant for all of us, obviously, but especially for those of us who might feel like we're a million miles away from God right now and not sure what he's doing. Because right now, for you and me, there are a multitude of things, a multitude of things that we have no clue about that God is actively working in and through. I remember John Piper said, he, he, he tweeted a little uh, 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 post a few years back, and then it became a, 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 almost an article, I guess. Maybe he's probably going to write a book about it. He does that whenever you know, he wakes up in the morning between coffee. He says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. 
He's constantly working in ways and multitudes that you can't even fathom in your life. And you might be aware of two or three of them that he's doing in your life. Because in our seasons of emptiness, and that's where we've seen Ruth and Naomi in this, in this season of emptiness, God is the one filling the emptiness. And that's how he works with us, right? In our seasons of emptiness, he is the one who fills the emptiness. There are so many moments of unknowing in this story that we've seen. So many things that they couldn't see in front of them. Naomi, she's traveled to, to, with her husband and her two sons to this land of Moab because there was a famine in the, in the land of Bethlehem. Now they left knowing that there's a famine there, but they have no idea what they're going to. They're just seeking food, right? They're just seeking some kind of provision for themselves. And, and some of you, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to uproot your life. You know what it's like to uproot your family and move to another place because of circumstances that may be outside of your control or outside of your knowing or outside of your doing. And you're just kind of in that place. And man, there's, that's, a, that's a place where your faith can kind of go one way or the other. You can lean into what God's going to do in that moment, right? And he can show you a lot of himself, or you can just be discouraged about it and be mad at God about it and miss a lot of things that he wants to do. And then things would go downhill for Naomi. She would lose her husband. She would lose her two sons. She's left with her two daughter-in-laws with no way to provide. She has no way to provide for them. And so by the time she returns to Bethlehem with only Ruth by her side, that's all she's got left. She's become a bitter woman. You remember back in chapter one when the story opened, she said that when she, when she got back to town, all of her girlfriends came and said, oh, Naomi, it's good to see you again. What's been happening? She said, no, 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 do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She said, no, my name is bitter now, because that's how I am. You see what the Lord's done to me? I'm not, I'm, it's not, I'm not in exciting times here. I'm not, I, have, I, have no, I have nothing. I'm here out of desperation. She had no clue what God was doing. To the point where she just was mad at him and blamed everything on him and said, you know what, he's just, he's really dealt me like fiercely wrong in this situation. And I'm mad at him and I'm bitter towards him. Ruth, she would face some hard choices, right? We've seen that throughout this, this book. Stay in her hometown or stick it out with her mother-in-law and relocate to Bethlehem. Like it's the, the choice is obviously easy, right? Go back to what I know. Like I'm at this, I'm at this crossroads. And I can go back to the thing that makes me comfortable. I can go back to the people that I know. I can go back to the, the things that I've, I'm used to worshiping. I can go back to the, to the language that I'm used to speaking and the culture that I'm used to, to, to existing in. But through proximity to this family, just her being part of this family, being close to this family, Ruth has put her faith in the God of Israel, Yahweh. She's now put her faith in the one true God, and she now has this new priority, right? She has a new priority in her life and this new calling, and now her life is to be, meant to be spent with Naomi. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to serve your God because your God has become my God now. She's, her priorities have changed. And, and listen, this was a risky move for Naomi, for Ruth. Like it's unfortunate enough that she's a widow, right? Like she's lost her husband, she's lost everything that she knows, all of her provision, but now she's choosing 
to be a widow and move to a foreign land, to go to a foreign land, forced to find work from people who's likely going to take advantage of her, who will mistreat her like the immigrant that she was. And so some of you, you have come to this saving faith in Jesus, and you have a family that has been less than thrilled about this. That's good for you. Or why did you do that? Like, that's our, our heritage is this. Why are, you, why are you chasing after that? What's going on? I know some of us have these types of family members, but let me encourage you. You have no idea how the Lord's going to work in your obedience to follow him. But you be faithful. Boaz, this landowner and, and this relative to, to Naomi, like what we've learned this, up to this point is this is one godly, trustworthy dude. Like, man, he has really been just a breath of fresh air to our story. He's had an unusual generosity and has shown extreme kindness. She would, he would let Ruth uh, glean grain from his field. He's, he's given the opportunity to redeem Ruth which meant that he could marry Ruth, he could purchase the family farm to keep it all in the family and to, and to preserve the family lineage. Like, this, this was all an opportunity that he had. And guess what? Every single one of these are risky moves. To the point where we saw uh, uh, just, just last week where one guy wasn't willing to take the risk. Like he, he heard, he, the, the proposition was made to him. You can, you can buy this land. You can have all of this. You can redeem these, these women. But oh wait, there's also this woman that you need to marry as part of the redemption process. And that was just too risky. But Boaz took the risk. And Boaz took the risk and he had no idea how this was going to shake out. He didn't know what God was doing. He was just being obedient, right? He was just, he was just taking the risk, knowing that, he, that, that the faithful God that he worshipped was going to work through this. And so we have these three people in this story who are making decisions with no guarantees, with none, except for a God who himself guarantees to be present at every step. That's the only guarantee they have. Is like we're stepping into uncertainty, and the only certainty that we have is that God's going to be with us. We have no idea how he's going to work this out, or even if he will work this out. It's pretty risky. I don't know if this is going to play out the way I want it to play out, but God fills this emptiness, right? And, and, and usually he does it in indistinct ways before, before we ever see a clear evidence of his work. He's doing it in these obscure and, and implicit ways, and, and we don't always get to see them right, there, right then and there as clear as him working. And so I want to take the rest of our time, I want to take the rest of our passage, uh, and we're just going to read that uh, together. One last, um, to close out the book, we're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4, and we'll read through verse 22, and then we'll continue. So follow along with me, uh, Ruth chapter 4. Uh, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. This was after the guy who uh, wasn't willing to take the risk to redeem her kind of turned it away and said, Boaz, you can have it. Boaz takes the opportunity. She became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood said, gave him a name saying, a son has been, get, been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And the lineage would go on and on and point right to Jesus Christ. Simply put, Boaz marries Ruth. Ruth gives birth to a son, Obed, and Naomi becomes Obed's nurse. God has exceeded Naomi's expectations. I love that. I love the way the scripture says, she's more to you than seven sons. You thought all of your hope was in having a son, having an heir to all of this, and Ruth has become, God has made her more than seven sons to you. She has given you exceedingly far more than you could imagine or hope for. You have been redeemed. Her expectations have been exceeded by this evidence of God's faithfulness. And he does it in just a, 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 a dozen different ways, but just a few of them. Like He's given her this community uh, uh, to surround her. Those same women of Bethlehem who welcomed her back, who said, man, this is a bad situation. Man, we were glad to see her, but man, she's mad at God. Man, she, she, you know, she, it's, it, she's bitter. But they surrounded themselves with her. They... they, they, they they stayed with her. They've been walking with her through this season. And now we get to celebrate God's faithfulness with her. And, and they affirm that her emptiness has been filled. So, wow, man. When you remember when you came back here, how messed up you were, how jacked up you were, how mad at God you were, and how empty you were, and you thought God wasn't doing anything and that he was nowhere near you? And now look at what God has done. He has far exceeded your expectations. And so they get to celebrate with her that her emptiness has been filled. That's what community does. That's why we put such a huge emphasis on you getting connected with brothers and sisters who not just be acquaintances with you, who will not just try to schedule some time with you, but who will be there with you through the thick and thin because guess what? It's coming. For every single one of us, we will go through seasons of emptiness and filling. And we need community with us in those times where we're empty and we need community in us within us whenever we're celebrating God's filling. Because what, what this story should just jump off the pages and tell every one of us is that God doesn't turn a blind eye to your burdens. He, he doesn't forsake you. He, doesn't, he hasn't forgotten you. This doesn't mean that he won't allow burdens to come, right? He does. He did. He will allow burdens to come. Naomi's husband, her sons, they're gone. They're gone forever. She's not getting that back. But God has surrounded her with a community of people who encourage her and who make much of God in her presence and who reminds her of how valuable she is and how worthy she is. And they've seen her at her worst. And Naomi had friends who pointed her back to God. And that's a big question, right? Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends like that who's going to, who, in those seasons where you're angry or where you're upset or where you're mad or, or where you feel like God is just a million miles away, do you have people in your life, do you have friends who are going to point you back to him to remind you of who he is, of his blessings, of his faithfulness, even in your seasons of emptiness and longing and hurt and grief? She has this community and, and even more so now she's got a family. 
Like she, God's given her a family. She has Ruth, right? She has a grandson, Obed now, who's going to become the restorer. The scripture says he's going to restore her. He's going to become her nourisher. All the things in her life that she's been lacking, he's now going to become for her. She's been given family. And I want to point out something that I, listen, I believe that it's applicable for every single person in the room in some way or, or another. For some of us in this room, we struggle with childlessness. There are people among us who struggle with childlessness, who are walking this, this hard path of infertility. And that's a real hurt. And that's real confusing. And you, just like that, you can turn on God and say, what are you doing? But let me tell you something. God has given you a multitude of children in this church who will bring you so much more joy than you can ever think to contain. Don't you miss what God's given to you in this church family. You might be struggling with some kind of separation from your family, whether that be your job has called you here or you're going to school in a different place or you're just separated from some other circumstance. And you could quickly be mad at God because I'm just kind of alone. I'm just kind of by myself. I'm kind of not able to figure this thing out. I want to, I want to tell you, like, that God has given you people in this church who will covet you as part of their family, who will covet, you, covet your presence and your friendship and your wisdom and your perspective. Naomi could have chosen to remain bitter. She could have chosen to stay mad about the things that God had, been, had taken from her, so to speak. But instead, she chooses to receive the new things that God's given her. She's, rece she's receiving the new things that God had for her, and now God is giving her a legacy. Now, she, now she's in Scripture that we're talking about thousands of years later as a very important focal point in the story of Jesus. The birth of Obed, as we saw it in the genealogy, would eventually lead to King David, Israel's beloved king, a beloved leader. And even better than that, this family line would lead directly to Jesus Christ himself. See, she's part of a huge legacy. This woman who was bitter, mad at God, empty, broken, had everything taken away from her, is in the storyline of Jesus now. And this is... And this is what the writer has been trying to point out to us. So when you read genealogies in Scripture, like, you know, how in the world can, can you pull, glean anything from just so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. God's wanting to speak to us in those moments. He's wanting to point out to us that there's some importance there. He's drawing, he's connecting the dots for us. And so we see that here, that these two women who were at their very worst are now in the line to see the Messiah come. This name, Obed, it means servant, right? And Jesus, who came, the, uh, the Lord would instruct Mary and Joseph to say, call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Christ is, is but God in the flesh who, who came to serve us, who came to save us, who came to give his life for us so that we might be with him and he with us. God has given Naomi, Naomi a legacy that leads straight to Jesus Christ. And this is, 
This is what God has surrounded Naomi with as a display of his faithfulness. He's given her this community of people who walk in with her through thick and thin. She's got a family that's being restored to her. Not only that, that they'll be there, her nourisher and her provider and her protector. And now she's even got a legacy. Her name is in this story. Can, can you see how God hasn't been explicitly in Naomi's line of sight? Can you see, like, as she's been navigating this, this hard time in her life, she couldn't possibly know everything that God was doing, and he wasn't showing his cards at every step of the way. He wasn't saying, hey, Naomi, you guys go to Moab because things are rough here, and here's what I'm going to do. She couldn't possibly see that. But God in his providence was working in that moment. He was working to lead them uh, in that moment. He's been behind every plot twist. He's been behind every moment. And he's been surprising Naomi at every turn by exceeding her expectations, by filling her, her emptiness. And, and some of you... Some of you may have gone through this, experienced a type of emptiness or hurt or longing. You might even be there right now. You might be in this place where you're feeling this right now. And these seasons, while you're in them and while you're navigating through them, or when you do, you may feel like God owes you something. Like he's indebted to you. Like God, if, if you are in control of this situation, it hurts. But I'm surrendering to you knowing that you're going to have to pay me back for this. Like you're, you're doing this to me, so I need something in return. There's been a lot of time lost. There's been a lot of emotions wrecked. There's been a lot of heartache endured. And so, God, you owe me something. Let me tell you something. God didn't owe Naomi anything. He didn't owe her a thing. And I realize how tough that theology is, but it's biblical. He didn't owe her a thing. Naomi was suffering from the same kind of emptiness and brokenness that you and I go through due to living in a fallen and jacked up world. And God didn't do that to us. We did that to us. We, uh, we defied God's commands. We are disobedient. We are rebels. The scriptures say that all of us have gone astray. We are like children of wrath, scripture would say. We've brought these things on ourselves, so God doesn't owe us anything. And I know that's tough for us to hear. I know that's tough, that all of his providence and all of his sovereignty, you mean to tell me that he's going he's gonna to ask me to walk this road? He's going to ask me to take these steps, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to leave me depressed and ang anxious and, and just hurting, and, and he's not going to pay me back for that? Well, he's God. He, he can do what he wants. And yes, he allows emptiness, right? But he uses it in ways that you, you, you're likely not going to see. He allows these things to happen. Like Naomi could be filled. The opportunity for her was there to be filled because she was empty. That makes sense. She knew she needed food because there was a famine. She knew she needed provision because her sons and her husband died. If, if there was no famine, she didn't think she needed food. If there was no lack of, of provider, then she would not think she needed provision. You understand? So in her emptiness, God can fill her void. She knew she needed a redeemer because her life was in ruin. Because that's where she was in her life. And you're going to know. You're going to know you need God when there's nothing 
but God to meet your needs. When he brings you to that place to where that's, that's it. Yesterday, I was, uh, I was given the privilege to preach a great aunt's uh, a memorial service. And this is kind of some of the same stuff that I was able to share in that service. It's in this place, in these funerals and memorials and cemeteries, where we realize we need hope the most. Where we realize that we are, in fact, not in control of everything. And does your belief sustain you there? Does your faith in God sustain you even in that place? Everything that was happening to Naomi was leading toward her redemption. Every single one of these heartaching steps, all these, these broken-hearted, suffering steps that she was taking was leading to her redemption. And this is how God works. This is how he works. He is always leading us toward our redemption. And it's equally important to know that, be aware of what he's leading you through. See, a lot of times we can get caught up in this, I'm in this moment, but I'm trying to look over there to see where God's going to kind of redeem this. And, and, and you're, you're missing what God has you in right now, even when it hurts. To be, to, to, to be aware of, to know what he's leading you through. Everything in your life is not there just for you to get through. It's not just for you there to just try to endure it and just kind of bear it and, and plow through it. But God's wanting you to be aware of every single point. Naomi's experience with famine, with, with lack of, it wasn't wasted. God didn't waste that and her loss of her family wasn't wasted. God was using all of these things. Her time in Moab was not wasted. She wasn't just kind of in there trying to just get through it and just try to push through it. She was in Moab, and God gave her things there. She came back with Ruth, who would then be a, a, an integral part of being, the, uh, being part of the redemption story. God was leading them down their road of redemption. And all of these hurts and all of these turns and all of these heartaches, that's the road that they were on, and they were headed toward their redemption. And by the time Boaz arrives in their story, by the time he shows up, Naomi and Ruth would now receive a, a couple of things because this road they had to walk down had completely emptied them. Every step they were being emptied more and more and more. And by the time Boaz arrives in the story, now there's a richer redemption available to them. They're empty. Busted flat there being filled with a richer redemption and they would be able to rejoice all the more. You see, the more God empties you out and then, and then becomes the one who fills you back, there's a much greater rejoicing because of the level of emptiness that needed to be filled. Does that make sense? And so if we're made to wait... We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If God asks us of that, of, of, of this waiting, and even waiting in our suffering, even waiting in our heartache, it's for the sake of a richer redemption. It's for the sake of a richer redemption from, from a redeemer with whom we share in his inheritance, the riches of his inheritance. And so how do we deal with a God who works this way? See, that's the thing. It's like, okay, I see all of this in Scripture. Man, that's hard, to, that's hard to chew on, man. That's hard to swallow. How do we deal with a God who works in this way? And what, we, what we've seen and what we see in and out of every turn of this story is obedience. That's what we've seen. And that's what he calls us to. He says, follow him. Follow God even in those seasons of emptiness and unknowing. You follow him. 
You be obedient. You take the steps that he, he asked you to take. Naomi did not curse God and abandon her faith when her family was taken from her. So many people do that when they get hurt. They blame it on God. They curse him and abandon their faith. And Naomi didn't do that. She remained steadfast in her obedience. She does acknowledge her pain. I'm bitter, man. I am absolutely empty. I am broken. Look what God has done to me. I'm still walking where he's telling me to walk, though. I'm still going to the place he's leading me. She goes back to her hometown. She allows Ruth to remain with her. She gives Ruth instructions to go to Boaz and to hang out next to his feet and just see what happens next. Through this, through this story, Naomi obeys God even in her emptiness. She's being obedient. That's how we respond to a God who works this way, who deals with us this way, is we, we remain obedient. Ruth didn't abandon her faith either. She didn't abandon her, her, her new Yahweh God either. She didn't run back to the pagan culture when she had an ample opportunity to do so. That's comfort. That's, I, I'm familiar territory there. I, I can go there. She didn't run back to her pagan culture. She sticks right by Naomi's side. She goes to work to provide. She just gets after it. She listens to wise instruction. Okay, okay, here's the play. Okay, I got it. Okay, I'm going to go do that. She didn't chase after young men. Like so many women in desperate situations do. Just the first one that gives me a, a, an eye or some attention, that's the guy. She didn't do that. She was praised for her steadfastness. She didn't throw herself at the first guy who would show her attention. She followed Boaz's lead, albeit slow, not sure, uncertainty still. There's another redeemer who could possibly redeem you. If he does, that's fine. I'm going to back away. That's pretty scary, but we're going to continue to stick with this plan. She's being obedient each step of the way. She waits for Boaz. She doesn't jump to the next best thing. She's obeying in the midst of loss and in the midst of uncertainty of her future. She's remaining obedient. She's doing the things that, that's, that's being asked of her. And Boaz does the same thing. So these three people that we're seeing, we see them just stepping out in faith, lots of uncertainty, lots of hurt, lots of emptiness, and they're being obedient the entire way. Boaz would show an overwhelming kindness to Ruth. Way more than he was required to. Way above the bare minimum. He assumed responsibility to step in as her kinsman redeemer. As the one who would redeem her, who would restore the family. He would step in and, and assume that responsibility. He made financial sacrifice. He gave of his harvest in, in, in abundance, plentifully. He marries Ruth. He has a baby with her to fulfill his responsibility as a redeemer. Boaz, he obeys God when, even when it's going to be costly, even when it's going to be inconvenient, and even when he assumes all of the risk. I hope you see Jesus in this story. This is what this story is meant to show us. That we are a desperate and empty and broken people and we need to be redeemed. 
And Jesus Christ goes above and beyond and fills us with exceedingly more than we could ever expect or hope or imagine. That he steps into this world, that he assumes all of our brokenness and says... I'm taking the risk. I'm paying it in full. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice everything to see a people redeemed. That's what the story's meant to point us to. That's what the Old Testament's meant to point us to. Anytime you're reading the Old Testament, you look for Jesus in the story. I hope you see Jesus in the story. See, we're not Boaz, just by the way. I know a lot of us are like, well, you know, I can, I can go and help someone, and I can, I can give them money and food and things like that, and we'd like to take the Scriptures and try to do those crazy things with them. We're the ones that's desperate. We're the ones that's empty. We're the ones that's broken. We're the ones that need a Redeemer. That's how the story's supposed to point. So will you obey God during the emptiness? Are you obeying God in your emptiness? Are you, will you obey God in that broken place that he might have you in? In that place where nothing is knowable. Where you have no idea what's in front of you. Will you be obedient? Because here's the deal. This is the place where the fruit of God's faithfulness is reaped. This is where you find God's faithfulness the most is right in front of you. This is the place where we experience God's redemption. You can't be saved in a prideful way. You're only saved by the grace of God when you're emptied of yourself, emptied of all of who you think you are and how awesome you think you are. That's where your redemption is found. I was um, sharing a little bit of uh, some background of our ministry in our new members class this morning. I, uh, I come to know Jesus when I was 23 years old. Um, I did not grow up in church. I didn't um, have like a good established grounding uh, Christianity or know a lot about it at all growing up. And um, shortly after God gave me a new heart and a one that would, would want to be obedient, even we've, we, we had some setbacks, but you know, he's working and refining every day. Um, it wasn't, wasn't, there, wasn't very long after that um, that he began opening doors and encouraging us to lead in, in ministry. We didn't know what that looked like. We had no idea um, what, what, what that was going to look like. And, and I just kind of started grabbing for things, trying to think, well, what does God want us to do? I know he wants us to, to, to just be faithful, and we're trying to do that, and we don't know exactly what it looks like. Um, so a few years later, we actually ended up leaving our home church and going spending some time at another uh, local church in the area uh, to do youth ministry. Um, and so we, we, when we got there, um, this, it was a very small church, a very small youth ministry with just a few kids, you know. And, and, and so we just started loving on these kids, right, and just kind of just, you know, pointing them to Jesus and, and hanging out with them. And, and God just started doing some cool stuff with that. Like he just really started multiplying our, our efforts there. Uh, and, and like um, we were seeing young people get excited about Jesus, and that's what we were really hoping for. Um, and so we were about a year into it, um, and things were just like clicking, man. Everything was going really good. And then, um, like, at the same time, Ashley and I both, like, felt the leading that it was time to go. And it's like, that's not when, that's not when leaders leave ministry. When things are going well, when things are kind of growing, and things are exciting, and people are getting excited about Jesus, that's usually not when, when people leave ministry. But why is God doing this? And so, um, we just talked it up to he was mistaken. Like he had a he, 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 wrong timing. And so we told him, nah, not right now. Um, and that set us on a 
uh, probably one of the darkest times in my ministry ever. Uh, that next six to eight months was just, if I can just use the word hell for me and for, for, for Ashley as well because she had to put up with me. Um, I had no idea what God was doing, but I just knew that I was hurt, man. I was just hurt. I was kind of going into this place where, um, where uh, I could sleep at night um, and I just didn't want to talk to anybody. I just didn't want to leave the house. Like, there was just all kinds of stuff that really, really hurt. And, and, we got to a point where we just threw our hands up and was like, okay, like, I don't even know if this has anything to do with it, but we're just, we're, we don't know what we're going to do next, but we're, we're going to tell them we're going, we're done. So we did that, um, and, and we were literally um, driving out of the parking lot of that church on our last day of, um, of being there in that ministry and not having a clue what we were doing. Didn't know where we were going to be going to church next Sunday even. Was, I mean, we're just driving down the road. We look at each other like, what the heck are we going to do? We don't know, you know? So uh, the, the process that week was, okay, well, we'll just we'll go back to our home church until we figure things out because we don't know. We don't know if that's where God wants us to be right now or not, but we're just, we're just not going to, like, hang out at the house, you know? We need, to, we need to be with God's people. And I won't go into all of the details, but over the next three months, it was overwhelmingly clear what God was doing. Overwhelmingly clear. There was, a, there was a one moment where I, I, was, um, I was surrounded with, with students and we were taking communion together and weeping and sobbing and praying for one another like God was just kind of breaking us to revive us in that moment. It was just the weirdest thing. And, and in that moment, he said, this is why you needed to leave. This is, this is where I needed you and, you, and I had no clue whatsoever, no clue, none whatsoever. And, and, and in that moment, that's when God revealed himself in an explicit way what was going on. And now when I stand here looking at all of you, when I look at this collection of people, I am looking at the explicit fruit of God's work in my season of emptiness. And not only mine, I'm looking at the explicit faithfulness of God working in every one of your seasons of emptiness. You see what God's doing here? Like, you see what God's doing in, the, in this moment? Like, it's not just mine, but all of our lives. Recall your seasons of emptiness. Recall your season where it just hurt, man. It just, it just hurt, and you wanted to be mad at God. And I want you to let this moment right here be a reminder to you of God's redemption and God's faithfulness. Look at what he's doing right now. Look at this community that he's building among these people, among all of us right now. Look at the family that he's given us right now. And by God's grace, may we leave a legacy that will far outlast any one of us in this community, in this group of people, that this city will be better for in, in hundreds of years to come if God would allow it. Paul prayed over the Ephesians. And I want to read this prayer over us as, as we close. And so just, uh, it's going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. It'll be up on the screen if you want to follow along. I just want to read this over us. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power of work within us. To him be glory in the church and in the Christ and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray together. Lord, uh, what a beautiful story. God, thank you for giving us the grace and the knowledge and the encouragement to look at this story in the way that you have shown yourself so mightily and so beautifully. God, I thank you for this story of redemption that speaks of a greater story, one that we are inheritances of, one that we get to partake in. That is the salvation that comes through Christ alone. And so, Lord, I pray that this, this time has been an encouragement for, for all of us. God, I pray that, that collectively you would begin to fill our emptiness. God, that you have brought us down a road where we have been completely emptied and completely broken. But you've given us your word and you've given us your promise. Not that you won't take this from us, but that you'll be with us every step of the way. Surely, goodness and mercy will be given to each one of us who feels empty, who've been walking through this valley of the shadow of death. God, would you show yourself. Remind us that you're there with us. Build, uh, build a community of believers. Build a family of people out of this group who would be obedient to the point where a legacy would be left in this community, that a legacy would be left in this world because of our obedience, even our obedience in times of hurt and suffering and heartache. We trust you, God. We believe you. God, help our unbelief. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name and for his sake and his glory. Amen.